Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share, she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, five wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise! The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years! The Wise Woman Way, and Susan's latest book, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at the Wise Woman University. But you can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and happy traveling, my family, my daughter Justine and my granddaughter Monica Jean, and of course the husband and father David are on their way as soon as trick-or-treating is done tomorrow to Paris, France, and I'll be going to join them in the middle of the month. So we have a show this week, and then we have a show Next week, November 6th, and one on November 13th, but we are not going to be with you on November 20th and November 27th. 
Yeah, I'll be off on my birthday, that means. So the 20th is my birthday. And oh, yeah, you'll be in Paris. Well, what good time. Paris is the name just recently referred to, named after Isis, the, the goddess. <laughs> Have All you heard right. that before, Paris? Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I thought that that was so interesting. The Paris is named after Isis? Yeah, something about Paris. Uh, I was just curious if you knew anything about that. I haven't heard anything about that. Interesting. Yeah. And um, just so you don't um, have to have that little lull with nothing to think about, we are going to spend the next couple of weeks interviewing people who are into sex. Hang on <laughs> until... Nine o'clock, and Rebecca Goyette will be here to poke holes in puritanical sexual mores. Woohoo! She has adopted the sexually aggressive female lobster as a primary character that she performs live. Goodness only knows what she'll be doing tonight. That's at nine o'clock tonight. Rebecca Goyette will be with us. So we dug roots this weekend, <clears throat> we dug teasel root. And it was fascinating okay. to me because... I saw a picture on... <laughs> you saw a picture from when Justine and I were digging teasel root earlier in the week. Oh, with Monica Jean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Monica Jean, that's right. Monica Jean and Justine and I went out to a field and dug teasel. And it was a very beautiful teasel. The, um, I don't know if you would call it a seed pod or a seed head, the part that's left behind when the seed falls out, the teasel, in fact, the teaser, this one had like little curlicues in the long parts that came out. And the one that grows where I live just sticks straight out. And you probably saw in the picture or the video that the roots we were digging up were fairly small, whereas the roots we dug up here at the Digging Roots class on Sunday from the teasel with the straight-out barbs, not the curly hue ones, were much bigger roots, maybe four or five times as big. Mm. Why is that? Why were they so much bigger? Just I, the they, must be they, were? they must be different species. Okay. Certainly, if the seed pods look that different, that would indicate to me that it's a different species. Right. And I know that in this area, I have certainly seen teasels of different colors. I haven't spent really focused time with the different teasels to get a sense of how they're the same and how they're different. But I might just start doing that since it was so fascinating to see the difference in the roots. Hmm, Yeah, we have a lot here, too. So I wonder if we have some different varieties as well. Mm -hmm. I have not known. Yeah, the roots we dug on Sunday were really the classic biennial spindle-shaped root, root, right? Bigger at the top and narrowing down to a point at the bottom like a carrot or a parsnip. But if you look in the video, Hmm. the teasel roots that Justine and I are digging up are all bifurcated. Hmm. And you might say, well, that's stonier soil, but hey, you don't get stonier soil than my soil. Mm -hmm. In order to these teasel roots out, we had to move like 20 different rocks from little pebbles to ones bigger than your fist. 
Mm-hmm. So no, you know, the soil, in fact, was more clayey, easier to work, easier to dig, where Justine and, and Monica Jean and I went, than the soil here, digging the teasel here, where we had the bigger, straighter roots. Mm-hmm. So again, arguing for absolutely some different species. For those of you not in the know, teasel root tincture is used by people who have Lyme disease. And it's used in fairly small doses. A starting dose would be about four or five drops. And then moving up or taking that more frequently as you need. And especially for people who have recurring Lyme or who have co-infections that are recurring. Is so that people, something that you use regularly? Well, I don't have Lyme disease. Okay. I thought that and I had heard something that usually people you... who do would only use teasel root when they have symptoms. It's not okay. a preventative. It helps you deal with the recurring problems that you get from tick-borne illnesses. Mm-hmm. And since those are recurring, in other words, not constant, then the teasel root only needs to be used when there's actually symptoms occurring or you feel like the symptoms are coming on. Okay, good to know. I haven't made medicine with teasel root, but I'm always curious because there's big swaths of it everywhere. Mm. And I told everybody, you know, that for myself, I wait until there's been hard frost before I dig roots. Mm-hmm. And we talked about different kinds of medicines that are made from digging the roots at different times of the year. And how perennial roots are going to be making bitter alkaloids and other poisonous constituents to protect themselves over the winter from things that would otherwise dig them up or be underground and eat them. Mm-hmm. And so the fall dug dandelion root or any root dug after those first really hard frosts is going to have more what we would call medicine. It's going to have more poison in it. Even a plant that has like a lot of alkaloids, that might be 2 3% alkaloids. It's not going to be a lot. Most of the rest of that, of course, is carbohydrate. It's food to keep the plant alive over the wintertime. And so the plant uses that, and it especially uses it in the first growth in the spring. When it's greening up and getting ready, it's going to use up a lot of that carbohydrate. So... The dandelion root that we dig in the fall, in the early winter, is going to have more poisons in it in terms of the plants making them right then. But the spring dug root will actually have a greater percentage of those poisons because more of the carbohydrates been used up. Hmm. And I that talked makes about, a lot of sense. Yeah, I mm-hmm. talked about chicory, which is mostly used roasted 
as a coffee additive, and so it's usually dug in the middle of the summer when they, it has a lot of carbohydrate and very little mm-hmm. alkaloid. So we're, so we're purposely not harvesting it at a time when it would be most medicinally active. Hmm. At any rate, we had a good time, and we were exceptionally happy to be outside because our class on colds and flus and herbs that, that can help us through the coldy, fluy seasons uh, was an indoor class. It was pouring, pelting, pummeling rain. Yeah, yeah, we got some rain back this week and it kept us inside too, but now it's a beautiful sunny day. Hooray! <laughs> yeah. So I was also going to mention, so you're going to take those two weeks off at the end of November, and then Marcy's going to do the follow-up show on uh, December, that first week of December when you get back. And then I'll be back for a couple shows before the holidays. All right. What fun. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have any callers tonight? We just have two callers with questions so far. If you have a question for Susan, please press 1 to speak with her. And we will go to our first caller in the 650 area code. Oh, hi, Susan. Um, This is Ron. I hope you have a great time on your vacation. Thank you, Ron. Oh, you're welcome. You know, about uh, six weeks I called you because I had a rash on my cheek, and it was... Um, it had been diagnosed by a dermatologist as that actinus keratosis, mm-hmm. and you recommended that I take some take either chickweed or red red clover oil, and I've uh-huh. been using that consistently for the six weeks, and I noticed that it's no worse. Seems like the it it has like it has like a couple of red areas, and then one really really small area where I guess it's a little bit drier, but there isn't that kind of brown scab that you usually see with that condition. And I noticed that it's smaller, but it isn't doing anything noticeably, like it's not all better. So you asked, to, you know, if I call back. So I was just wondering if I should continue with that or maybe use something different. I think given the good results that you're seeing, that continuing mm-hmm. with makes a lot of sense and especially when you have something that's working but maybe not working quite as well as you want it to one of the ways to improve or increase the effectiveness is to up the ante in terms of who's making the remedy Uh, the the oils that you're using are the oils that you have made. I bought it at Caskill Mountain Herbs. I'm I'm really new to the wise okay. woman way, but I ordered them. Yeah. That's absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful. And mm-hmm. what I'm saying is that you might want to try it from some other maker. Mm-hmm. And see if that makes a difference. And then you might want to research how to make an oil from dried herbs and make some dried red clover oil, some red clover oil from dried red clover and some 
chickweed oil from dried chickweed. It's not going to be ideal, and you may find that you really prefer the ones made from fresh plant. But again, the wonderful thing about herbs is that we have such a subtle color palette to work with. Mm-hmm. So that we can fine-tune this, you can fine-tune this to something that's, that really works for you. Mm-hmm. And I think we talked about drinking nourishing herbal infusions, yes? Yes, and I am. Wonderful. And Wonderful. I noticed a huge difference in my skin from doing that. From taking the nourishing herbal infusions and just have don't have dry skin anymore. Oh, I'm so thrilled to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm still kind of learning like when to take them because seems like my stomach drinks something that's that um, nourishing or like food. Uh-huh. I like kind of put my meals in the same spot, you know, like three of them. Instead of like having a lot of stuff in my stomach, my stomach, I just kept feeling like I was hungry every time I drink them. But they are really amazing. And I my husband's drinking a little of it too, so that's great. All right. Yeehaw. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Those, those are those are powerful powerful allies they're very very powerful allies to have with us and um the the herbs are herbs that provide very high level nutrition as well as being adaptogens antioxidants um giving us a lot of the benefits that we can study in coffee drinkers and tea drinkers, but we can't really study yet in herb drinkers because there's not millions of them. Mm-hmm. But those we're getting, uh, and though with using our nourishing herbal infusions, those same compounds. Mm-hmm. Thank you for calling and, and, and keeping you know, us updated. I, if you want to call again in six to eight weeks, that would be fun. You know, I have a question for you about tinctures, too. Yeah. I'm a little bit confused about how how we use them. I know the nourishing herbal infusions are food. You can tell that. Absolutely. But yeah. you seem to take tinctures yourself quite often. So you don't just take them when you're sick. You can take them for nourishment also. Not then, really nourishment. No. Tinctures, the alcohol is going to search out the more poisonous, that is, more medicinal parts of the plant. Mm-hmm. And the minerals or the vitamins or the proteins. Oh, I see. Plus, tinctures are taken in small amounts. Let's, yeah. let's say, just for the sake of saying, that you can get as much of the nutrition from a plant into alcohol as you can into water. It's not true, but we're going to say that for this example. We're going to go to our nettle patch, and we're going to harvest four ounces of nettle and hang it up to dry, and that will dry into one ounce of dried nettle. We can then make one quart of infusion from that. We can also harvest four ounces of fresh nettle, cut it up, put it in a quart jar, 
pour our tincturing medium, I usually use 100 proof vodka, over it and let it sit for six weeks and we will then have a quart of tincture. There's approximately a thousand milligrams of calcium in the quart of infusion, and we're saying that there's about a thousand milligrams of calcium in the quart of tincture. A quart of tincture is 32 one ounce bottles. And that means there's about 35 milligrams of calcium per one ounce bottle of nettle tincture. Uh huh. There's 40 dropperfuls in a bottle. If this was a food stuff, I would have to list calcium as zero on the label because it's less than 1% per dose. Mm-hmm. So even if the alcohol was capable of getting out the nutrients, we wouldn't be consuming the tincture in doses large enough to make any difference. Mm-hmm. And that's why we want to make a tincture, because we want those constituents that are present in small amounts, Mm -hmm. those poisonous medicinal constituents, and we want to be able to take them in small doses. We Mm -hmm. want to be able to take four drops of teasel tincture or one drop of poke root tincture. Not every tincture is taken in small amounts. And some people take tinctures on a daily basis for maintaining health in the same way that some people take drugs on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah, I see. So Hawthor- yeah. Hawthorne for the aging heart. Mm-hmm. Now, Hawthorne is a fruit in the apple family, the rose family. And so it is actually a food stuff, and I could make hawthorne infusion and drink that. The leaves and the flowers of hawthorne are also used, and that can be made into an infusion and drunk. But what's easiest for me is to make a tincture of the hawthorne berries. I prefer fresh, but I don't live where there are lots of hawthorne. Um, this one, you know, like maybe every hundred acres, really very little hawthorn here. Um, so I use the dry berries. And I'm seeing it that that tincture, taking that tincture on a daily basis, provides a very important background support for cardiac functioning. Mm-hmm. So you could pick any system in your body that you just want to maintain your health in and kind of throughout the course of a month or something, you could take a tincture on a daily basis and it would be for prevention or for health, not because you have a disease at at the time. Okay. Now I I see what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So I bought some burdock root and, Wonderful. You could do that with burdock root, too. I make a lot of vinegars, and I get a lot of yeah. herbal nutrition because the vinegar searches out the minerals. Mm-hmm. So if we also cut four ounces of nettle and made that into vinegar, it the vinegar would have the most minerals of any of the three preparations. Mm-hmm. 
sometimes as much as 100 milligrams of calcium per tablespoon. Mm. So the, the vinegar is very much searching for the minerals and things. Burdock, you're saying burdock root, of course, made me think of that, because burdock root vinegar is not only a champion, world-class vinegar, but then you wind up with pickled burdock root, which you can eat or add to salads or beans or anything you want. Mm-hmm. Can you make that out of dried burdock root, the vinegar, like you can mushrooms? Try it and see. What do you have to lose? Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's the okay. great thing about herbs, especially herbal medicine, as people's medicine is experiment. It's very, very difficult to do it wrong. Mm-hmm. Apple cider vinegar over fresh, wild rose hips, and the rose hips in my area are small, almost like big BBs. And six weeks later, that's what I had was hard red BBs in vinegar, and the vinegar had <laughs> no relationship to the rose hip at all. So it was a total failure. Yeah. Unless we look at, oh, I learned something, and I turned around, I found somebody who lived by the sea coast, and I said, do you have any rugosa rose hips? I'd like some, please. (laughs) 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 And then I made vinegar with the rose hip that was big and fat and juicy, and was that a fabulous vinegar. Nice. I'm going to try vinegars next. You will enjoy it. And they cast a wide net. A We've made almond vinegar. I've made grapefruit vinegar. Almond. Yeah. Wow. Cast a wide net. Vinegar is fun. Yeah. I can't wait to, to for them to get ready. If you don't have a, never, a lot of other callers, I'm confused about the difference between violet leaves and violet flower for, I, I think, for cysts. Violet leaf is the part that's generally used medicinally. Violet flower can be used, but it's fairly difficult to use it. And usually when it's used, it's used fresh. In other words, you can buy dried violet leaf as an herb, but you can't buy dried violet flowers. And mm-hmm. dried violet leaf carries medicinal properties. The strongest properties are in the fresh plant and the fresh leaves, but supposedly quite especially in the fresh flowers. Mm-hmm. And if you taste them, they taste a little um, uh, kind of wintergreeny, um, which says to my tongue, oh, salicin, oh, acids, of course, yes. One year, we had just the right weather conditions, and a lawn nearby us, a very large lawn, um, was covered in violets. And we were able to fairly easily get enough violets to um, really stuff small jars with thousands of violets and then to pour honey on it. And that is such a wonderful treat for the skin. I just I wet my face, put a little violet honey on my fingertips and rub it in and let it dry. It does, it's not sticky. That sounds beautiful. I wish I had violets where I live. Mm-hmm. 
many people have so many violets, pull them out. They can be quite invasive, as they were in this lawn where we got thousands of them. <laughs> Lucky. Well, thank you, Susan, for your time and for all that you do for so many people. Appreciate it. You are welcome. Green blessings. Good night. Thank you. Green blessings. The next caller is coming from the 845 area code. Hi, Susan. Hi. Hi. I I called you. I'm sorry to call you again. I feel like I'm being too greedy, so I'll try to be quick. But I called you last week about what I suspected was a UTI, and I didn't go to get a culture, blah, 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 like I thought I was going to. Instead, I had a little talk with my bladder, and I consulted down there your book, And that night after I spoke to you, I just felt like I was getting worse. And you had told me it was absolutely made me feel relief that I could, in fact, take a dropper full of over Ursi or Yarrow and I wouldn't be killing myself, obviously. It would be okay. But after looking at your book and feeling like I was getting worse, I, I hope I did the right thing, but I decided to just go exactly uh, not ex- sort of the way you suggest in the book like doing four to six dropperfuls and um i had a question about that i feel like i'm a little better i'm not a hundred percent at least i'm not getting up in the middle of the night but i have a few questions I, they're probably pretty easy one is what do you call a dropperful because i feel like everybody feels that's <laughs> different <laughs> a dropperful like, is the amount you can get in the dropper with one squeeze of the rubber Okay, because I thought it was to fill up the glass, so I was doubling. You cannot it. do that. Okay, I'll never do that again because now it leads to my well, next. You, you um, can't. You never did it in the first place. You can't get the dropper full, can you? No. So I, what I did was a <laughs> dropper full is exactly what it says. A dropper, dropper full, not a full dropper. Okay, sorry. So I did well, that, I and then I'm confused too, because it's a dropper full. Suppose you have a four-ounce bottle. You'll still get the same amount in a dropper full, but the glass pipette is, like, much longer. Uh, of course. It feels like when they're getting low, though, like my Uva Ursi was low, it felt like it was only getting a quarter of the dropper, and a dropper full And I usually, like- I usually tilt it at that point. Okay, so but but you will not be surprised when I tell you the next thing is that I quickly went to the health food store and got the yarrow and added that, and I almost didn't make it home with the diarrhea that I had. I was real. I was like, oh my god, what's going on here? I mean, it was it was hellacious. But then I felt like it was probably a good thing. I don't know. And so I just, I did keep taking it, only I didn't take it in my mouth like you had suggested. I put it in some water, and I was consistent with it throughout the day. And I feel like it, it's been a week now, and it's alleviated it, but it's not quite gone. And there was also, um, I did the mallow, which I really didn't like that much, so I, I kind of stopped that. But uh-huh. I wanted to just ask you, I felt like, and, and I hope this is, I'm not just making things up, but I felt intuitively like the Uva Ursi was making me want to pee more than I had to. So I stopped it and I just stayed with the yarrow. And I feel like, I think I'm getting better, but um, should I be cutting down the yarrow? In the book you say two weeks, I guess, duration, but it's not two weeks yet. Um, 
I can't hurt myself, I guess, doing four to six real dropperfuls a day. Is that right? It's pretty difficult to hurt yourself with herbs. Okay. It's not impossible. Okay. It's pretty difficult. I actually don't think that either uva ursi or yarrow could have caused diarrhea. Oh, okay. In fact, they're both considered astringent herbs. That they are used against diarrhea. Hmm. It's rather like the woman who wrote into Prevention Magazine and said, you should warn people I drank a cup of oat straw tea and had a heart attack. Oh, yeah, okay. What comes before something does not necessarily cause that thing. I see. I just assumed it because I didn't do anything else that was different. So, um, and then I and I looked at one of your your videos, Madam Yarrow, and I was, it, I just had a real resonance with that for some reason. I felt yeah. like it was really me. Yeah, I, I and think I, you, I think yeah. Bottle, and I want to do that, and of course it's too late now. But um, I just felt like maybe, I mean, I feel like it's helping my GI system as well, and I saw that it does that also. Yes, yeah. Yarrow is a perennial plant. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to make a tincture of yarrow leaves, you can harvest them now. It's not too late. Oh, okay. Okay. It looked like it was springtime. It's not exactly the same as the tincture you would make from the flowering tops. Oh, okay. My friend, herbalist friend Gretchen Gould, who mostly uses herbs to make oils and ointments, mm-hmm. is very happy that I come and pick the yarrow flowers because she doesn't use them at all. Uh-huh. She only uses the large fall leaves. And she says she thinks for wound healing that that's the best part. But again... Uh-huh. You can't really go wrong. If you have a resonance with yarrow and you want to make a small yarrow tincture from some leaves this fall, do that. I'm sure yarrow will work with you in that way. Okay. And I sh- could, I mean, I, this is my second UTI this year or alleged UTI. Um, could could I continue taking it like once or twice a day? That wouldn't really be a bad thing then, right? Um. I I wouldn't take yarrow on a daily basis. It's a okay. fairly strong herb. We compare it to, say, Hypericum, St. John's wort, St. John's wort, uh, which can be taken a dropper full every for ten years. Oh, really? Wow. Or hawthornberry tincture, and people take two to four dropperfuls daily for for decades. But not yarrow. Not yarrow. The yarrow is usually used when there's a, an acute condition. So you could have yarrow on hand to use as soon as you feel mm-hmm. any symptoms starting, and it will work better or the faster you use it, of course, mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. And um, you could also look at the advice there about little dietary tweaks you could do, um, things, things that might be um, adding to 
those recurrent affections, infections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The only thing that scares me a little bit is I'm not really sure that's what it is. And, of course, you know, you look at Dr. And Google, it, which I if it isn't, what would it be? Well, that's a great symptom of other things that, uh, you know, ovarian cancer. I mean, I don't, I don't want to go there, but I'm just, I really. I have you know, never you, heard that a bladder infection is a symptom of ovarian cancer. No, um, I'm sorry. Bloating is a symptom of ovarian cancer. Um, abdominal pain is a symptom of, of um, ovarian cancer. Um, indigestion, those definitely are symptoms of ovarian cancer, but I've never heard the bladder infections are, unless it's pretty far along. Having to urinate or, or just feeling like you have to urinate more. I mean, Susan, this may be a really stupid question. I'm going to answer it. I ask it anyway. I, when you get older, I mean, I'm 60, almost 62, does that, mm-hmm. does that sometimes happen, or do you think it's is this, like, related to emotional stuff? Like, what is your experience with that? The United States Preventative Services Task Force now recommends that starting at about age 30, all primary care doctors ask the women patients, are you having any difficulty with holding your urine? Mm-hmm. The reasoning for incontinence should right. be universal at the primary care level, and it should begin around age 30. Does that make you feel like you're alone? It shouldn't. No. It should make you feel like, oh, my goodness. And, I, and I'm not even starting to notice anything until I'm in my 60s. All right, I got a 30-year jump on them. But I'm, I, I see what you're saying, but it just when something changes vastly just from like one – I mean, I know, you know, you expect this stuff to happen in your older age, but it just happens uh-huh. so quick. I mean, I'm used to being like peeing – three times a day maybe and uh-huh. all of a sudden I constantly feel like I have to go and it it just it takes I mean it's all it's disconcerting if I'm teaching or doing something that my mind is on something else it's okay but I can't really rest it, it, does that make any sense like it's it's it absolutely it absolutely does and okay. you might want to read the part about overactive bladder okay I, I, sh- I should stop looking for the really worst case scenario and maybe just look for overactive bladder. I skimmed through it. I, I'll, I'll look at it again. Thank you, Susan. I'm, I'm sorry to ask you questions that probably I could have found in the book. It's really fine. That's why I'm here on Tuesdays for people to ask those questions. We all learn in different ways. And our <laughs> our goal is uh, to help you learn your way. Well, I really appreciate that. And we really enjoy that. Thanks for calling. Thanks for asking. Bon vacant to you. Green blessings. Good night. Have a beautiful time in Paris. Thank you. Our next caller is coming from the 541 area code. If you have a question for Susan, make sure to press 1 to put your call in the queue. Hello? 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 Are you still on there, Susan? 
are you on? Hello? Hi, in the 541, do you still have your radio on? Or your speaker? Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now. Hello? Susan? Hear me? Oh, there you go. Okay, you're on there, Susan. I don't know why the speaker went off on yours. Okay. Here. Okay. Here we go. Thanks for pushing the right buttons, Rebecca. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry about that. It's all right. Hi, Susan. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm calling tonight because um, I'll give you some backstory. Um, I've been experiencing what I would call hemorrhoids for quite a while. Hello? I'm right here. Okay. That was a weird feedback there. Um, And... Like I said, it's been going on for quite a while. It started kind of intermittently, and lately it's been more consistent, and um, it uh, is definitely worse at night, and it's like a hot, burning itchiness. And um, basically what I've done so far is um, more topical, like witch hazel, plantain oil, chickweed oil. Um, And so... And I am drinking the nourishing herbal infusions. Um, but I wanted to ask about horse chestnut. I've heard using that internally. Are you still there? I am. You've heard using that internally? The horse chestnut? I'm not clear what your question is. Sorry to be Um, dense. I don't know what you're asking me. uh, I wanted to know your opinion on using horse chestnut internally for hemorrhoids. All right. I understand what you are asking me about. And let me go to... should be... Thing about horse chestnut in down there. H. Homeopathy. Hormones. Horse chestnut. Looks like it's on page 27. placebo-controlled trials, including one restricted to pregnant women, confirm the ability of horse chestnut to counter inflammation and tighten veins. In addition to relieving hemorrhoids, it relieved nocturnal leg cramps, phlebitis, rheumatism, neuralgia, and bruises. Contains A-skin, which reduces the permeability of blood vessels, plus tannins and quercetin, which counter pain and swelling. And there are no side effects with 
proper administration of a designated therapeutic dosage, and I quote there, a cup a day of the leaf tea, 30 drops twice a day of the seed tincture, or four seed extract capsules a day are considered safe dosages. Internal use of horse chestnut can cause the urine to turn red. Because it is a blood thinner, it is generally not safe to take if you are on aspirin therapy or taking any other anticoagulant drug. Susceptible patients may experience irritation of the gastrointestinal tract or a decrease in kidney function. Well, that's very thorough, and I could have looked that up. Um, Great. Um, I will give that a shot. You said 30 drops of the tincture a day. Okay. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, I look forward to your show every week, and appreciate you being available for us. Thanks so much. Thanks for calling. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. So we don't have anyone with their hands raised at this time. If you have a question, please press 1. And we'll uh, all the and problems of the world have been solved. Hooray. Uh, my favorite state of affairs. Let's see. We'll go to, we'll go to this question. It says, uh, what oil is safe to cook with in the wise woman tradition? I'm getting mixed reviews about olive oil saying it's not safe to heat. Thank you for your feedback. I would say there's a difference between not safe and not best. So, most of us don't live where olives grow and olive oil is produced. So it can be difficult for us to get, all of us, to get really good quality olive oil. It can be adulterated. All kinds of things can go on with that. What most people do to get the best olive oil is to buy extra virgin olive oil because usually it's the ones that aren't extra virgin that have been messed with somehow. However, extra virgin olive oil is extra virgin because it has flavor and aroma compounds. Extra virgin Olive oil is the first part of the pressing. So the olives are put in the press and the screw or the press is brought down on it. And as the oil comes out, the first of the oil that comes out of the press has more color and more aroma because those things are extracellular. They're held outside the cell wall. As we continue to press, we continue to get olive oil, but it's not extra virgin anymore 
because there's not as much color and flavor compound. In the best of all worlds, we cook with that olive oil, the olive oil that is coming through the press after the most flavorful and colorful oil has already been taken off. But that's hard to get. We can not do any damage to ourselves by cooking with extra virgin olive oil. We do damage to the oil. It's not that it's not safe for humans. It's not safe for the oil to be heated. That said, you can, of course, gently heat olive oil. And we know that the healthiest foods are not the foods that are cooked in hot oil. So if we say to ourselves, hmm, I'm going to cook with olive oil, and that means I'm not going to cook at a high heat with oil because that's not good for the olive oil, that will be better for our health as well. I certainly have no objection to cooking with coconut oil. Ghee is an excellent choice, as is butter. Organic bacon fat is a fabulous fat to cook with in the kitchen. As are any other kinds of fats that you like, Sally. Fallon is the expert that I turn to, the knowledgeable person that I turn to when I want to know about fats, and her video, The Oiling of America, makes it pretty clear that animal fats are healthier and safer than vegetable oils, thus the ghee and the butter and the bacon fat, rather than what's now considered healthy oils, the seed oils. One of the... One of the things that Sally is on about, that Weston Price was on about, was the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids in the diet, with the has not yet been refuted. And believe me, people have been trying to refute that omega-6 fatty acids cause inflammation. They've been actively working to do that for decades now, and they haven't yet been able to. So it's seeming to stand up to some intense scrutiny that a, a ratio of one omega-3 to one omega-6 is going to cause the least inflammation, and that's the closest to a natural human diet. The natural human diet even goes to two omega-3 to one omega-6, but the seed oils are more like one omega-3 to hundreds of omega-6s. You were going to she add something, Rebecca? Yeah, she just she she recommends quite a bit in her book uh, to take flaxseed oil, though, like to add it to stuff, which um, I've heard can go rancid really, really quickly rap- after it's been. Yeah. So exactly. that's one thing she does recommend that I that I wouldn't do is right. add I the flaxseed. I don't do cod liver oil either, and she's a big fan of cod liver oil. Right. Yeah. 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 But this was a question about cooking oils, right? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Johanna Budvig, 
the German a doctor who used the flax oil would actually take the flax seeds in the grinder to the patient's bedside, grind the flax oil on the site and feed it to the patient so that it was less than a minute old when it was consumed. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. If we could only get people to really take uh, responsibility like that and do things like that. (laughs) (laughs) There are people who do. Yeah, there are people that do. I would do something like that. (laughs) Um, All right. We still don't have anybody. It it turns out, however, that brown flaxseed meal cooked into muffins and pancakes and breads and things like that is very strongly anti-cancer, so you don't even really have to mess around with the flax oil at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just buy the flaxseed meal or ground flaxseed, keep it in the freezer, and bake it up. Yum, yum. It sounds really good. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, anybody has a question, press one. Otherwise, we're going to go to another question here. Um, says, I need some guidance on herbs or other healing modalities that would help with feeling stuck in your bo- in your head and subsequently disconnected from your body. I tend to get trapped up there with circular, intrusive thoughts, and I feel that it sometimes keeps me from feeling pleasure in my body and also keeps me from nourishing myself appropriately. I'm leaning toward root herbs to help with grounding and other suggestions for feeling more connected to myself as a whole being. What a lovely question. Mm -hmm. I do another radio show and that radio show is for healthylife.com and I record that radio show it is on the air it's webcast so it's on your your web um, at on some day of the first week of the month it gets changed now and then, so I don't like to say, because as soon as I say, of course, it gets changed, and then I'm wrong, and that's okay. Um, the show I just recorded Thursday night was about herbs for the brain and herbs for helping us focus. And the focus means to not be bothered by those intrusive thoughts. The star of the show was Gotukola. Gotukola, an herb in the parsley and carrot family that basically grows all over the world, Hawaii, South America, anywhere that's warm enough. Centella will grow. I just ordered a pound for myself to... um, experiment with. The taste is said to be bland, and it is said to be odorless. So this right away says to me, oh, I'm going to try an infusion of Gotacola. Of course, you know, you will always find the author who says, oh, you can't take Gotacola for more than six weeks without taking a break. But I don't necessarily find that to be true with herbs that are adaptogens, and Gotacola is considered an adaptogen, and herbs that are as nourishing as Gotacola is, although it's not, you know, up there, you know, with uh, nettle and kale and oat straw and so on. It is nonetheless 
and nourishing her. So that would be my thought, is to see if an alliance with Gotacola might help. I also, for myself, use a color technique. And any of us can be in a place in our lives where there are intrusive thoughts. As we all know, I had a bad thing happen to me and my barn and my animals. And, of course, in the first weeks of that, that was a very intrusive thought for me. I would just, you know, time after time, find my my mind thinking about it and, and hurting me. And the color technique is to choose a color, any color, but you work with that color that you have chosen. And when that intrusive thought comes up, you say the name of that color, and you find that color to look at. So if your color is green, you say green, 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 and you look at green, and you fill your eyes with green, and you're saying green, 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 green. And you have chosen what thought you are going to think, and that is green, and you are going to think green. It sounds very simplistic, but you know, I have found that the simplest things are usually the most effective things. It doesn't require any equipment. You don't have to breathe in any special way. And it works with um, things that are traumatic as well as things that are just annoying. They say if you have a songworm, the only way to get rid of it is to sing another song. Hmm. You heard? Have you heard of songworms? I have not heard that. That's that's that no. song that gets in your brain and won't leave. Right. I haven't had that for a while. Right. Well, not true. But since I started chanting, sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night like chanting that that mantra. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah. Yes. Yes, and that the other, that if there was some other chant going on in your brain that you didn't like, the way to get rid of it would be to chant the chants that you know. Right. And that's because like you can't out of can't get you can't get rid of something from your brain, right? And I feel like um, just kind of like that vibration. I was actually with like a cedar. I was drawn to this cedar tree today. I have one in my yard as well, and I was uh, sitting with it and like chanting, and I was feeling like, yeah, that like really grounds you into the ground. Like sitting, and I, there were all these. Um, cedar needles that were around me and I was picking them up and putting them in my lap and it was like that that energy was like drawing me down into the earth and I could like really feel how the cedar like spreads itself out over the earth and like really is so protective and stabilizing for the ground on like and I was I, I don't know but just this question and while you were talking I was thinking about that and and uh how powerful trees are too of like connecting with them and getting us to ground down and, um, yeah, feeling more of an earth connection. 
Absolutely. For some reason, cedar almost always comes to me as this very a smiling, lovely woman who is dancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always cedar would have like a male spirit, but today I was definitely feeling like a, a very feminine energy, and I've been uh, working kind of with some goddess femi- uh, Durga energy, and it was like that's where I wanted to be was with the cedar tree, with the you know like this Durga mother protective energy, and so I thought that that was really really interesting, but. Mm-hmm. Yes, we say the fiercest animal in the forest is the mother of anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Very protective. Yeah. Well, we did have somebody queue up with a question, if you're done answering that question. Yes, let's go on. Okay. The next caller is coming from the 508 area code. Hi, Susan. It's Luna. And how are you Um, tonight? I am well. Um, I have a question regarding food. Um, My father is actually coming to spend Samhain with me for a couple of days and help me put in a new wood-burning stove, and I have to cook for him. He just had um, a quadruple bypass surgery about a month and a half ago. My mom is kind of worried that I'm going to feed him um, food that will hurt him. Um, She says things like eggs and bacon and butter and all that for him for breakfast. That's probably not a good idea, but I felt like, why not? You know, so I don't understand, like, her her thing. With that, I mean, do you think that he really does like eggs and he'll eat them behind her back, so it's not a problem, like, if I fix them for him. <laughs> but I just wanted so, to know, like... And depending on whether your mother is saying this from an emotional basis or from a factual basis, you may not or may have an opportunity to change her mind. In other words, if what she's saying is, I love your father and I've heard that cholesterol is bad for him and eggs have cholesterol so he shouldn't eat them, you have an actual chance to just find the latest research that shows that eating up to a dozen eggs a week doesn't change your risk of a heart attack. Okay. And that research is out there. It's very recent. And what she is going on is very old research. Yes. And that's okay. That's what she was taught. That's what she believes. And there are older doctors who believe that as well. I was in a cardiologist's office, and he said to the person that I was there with, well, stay away from eggs and butter and full-fat dairy and red right. meat and da-da-da. <laughs> and after he'd you know, finished his dietary recommendations, I said to him, you know, the foods that you mentioned that are high in cholesterol have never actually been directly associated with cardiovascular events, but hydrogenated and partially hydrogenated fats have been. 
And yet you mm-hmm. didn't warn him not to consume any of those. And he looked at me and he said, it's not in my protocol. Oh. Okay. <laughs> It's not that he didn't know what I was saying. Right. But because of insurance reasons, he wasn't allowed to say that. You okay. must understand that health care in America is first and foremost for the health of the insurer, not for the health of the patient. Right. So even though the doctor may know that it's perfectly fine for your dad to eat eggs. He may have told him, and he may have told him in your mother's presence not to eat eggs. Right. Right, which is why it's important that you find the research. Now, if she's coming from, you know, an emotional, strictly an emotional place, you are never going to be able to change her emotions. You can change her mind, but you can't change her emotions. Yeah, I think it's both, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and you can also um, show her that eating beans is an excellent thing for anybody with heart problems to do and that you're going to be, you know, introducing him to some fun bean variations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, like if he's not familiar with little red lentils or with black lentils, but most people really like those and find them a lot of fun. Oh yeah. So I think that if you cook a good whole foods diet for him, with a de-emphasis on meat, bacon. You know, for those of us who are doing fine, a little bit of bacon here and there is not a problem, but. Processed meats are always going to be more of a problem. Yes. And bacon is processed. Mm-hmm. So you could, you know, perhaps parlay that, you know, into saying, you know, well, the eggs are really good for him, but I certainly wouldn't serve him bacon so that your mom feels like, oh, you're really going to take good care of him. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I can do that. <laughs> Probably doable, right? Yeah, I think she'll she'll be good on that. So. Yeah, and hooray for eggs! Eggs have totally and completely been vindicated, and are starting to be reestablished as a health food. Hooray! 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 For eggs. <laughs> yeah. And we have our own skin, so that even makes it, you know, better. So. Oh, goody. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for your advice. You're welcome. Green blessings. Green blessings. Good night. <laughs> All right, it looks like we're going to answer another written question. Unless you have a question, please press 1 to ask your question. And we'll go to this other Here we go. I seem to be suffering more and more from symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis, and I'm wondering if there has been any success, what I imagine, calming an immune system that is so overactive as to attack my joints with pain. 
It began with my feet, but this past week has settled painfully in the elbows and shoulders. In the past, my knees and hips have taken their turns with weeks or months of awful pain. I do not test positive for the RA factor in my blood, but I am told that this doesn't necessarily rule out rheumatoid arthritis. My symptoms are pain that is nearly always symmetrical, which I find funny. So if one knee hurts, then both knees hurt. If one elbow hurts, the other one does too. If the kids come home with a cold from school, I never get the cold, but it seems to settle instead in either my nerves, my joints, or my joints. I have been trying to figure it out for so long, but I think that this is what happens. The immune system takes care of incoming viruses by inflaming various parts of my body. And I suppose well, he's asking... This, this whole um, cast of characters here, of symptoms, is screaming Lyme disease to me. Hmm. She tests negative for RA antibodies. It's symmetrical. There's nervous system involvement. This is Lyme disease. We started out the show talking about teasel and teasel root tincture. And people who have active... Lyme disease using teasel root tincture. So since we started the show talking about that, why don't we have that as our kind of last remedy of the evening too? Mm-hmm. Not that not that mm-hmm. it's the very last thing, but getting on toward the the end of the evening with just another twenty minutes to go here to come back to teasel. And one of the wonderful things about herbal medicine is that if Teasel does uh, relieve her pain and her symptoms, we don't really need to know exactly what it is that's going on because we've achieved our goal. This is certainly not some problem that is being caused by her lifestyle or her diet. It's pretty obviously some agent, you know, she's linking it up to viruses and so on. But again, that is very much the modus operandi of Lyme disease, is that it waits until your immune system is busy dealing with something else, and then it goes, ha, 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 gotcha. Are we still connected here? Yeah, I'm just listening. And so oh, okay. you think, uh, and we did have somebody else queue up. But did you want to? Did you want to add anything else to that? No, I think that's a good place for her to start. Yeah. Okay. Sounds. All right. The next caller. I do, I do have a um, online video course. Um, Happy knees. And there's lots and lots and lots of other suggestions as to herbal things we can do to help our knees be happy. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's good. All right. From the 9 
hello. Uh, thank you, Rebecca, and hello, Susan. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call, and a happy new year to you. Yes, and to you. I uh, keep on receiving messages in my dreams where you're where you're involved, where you keep on visiting me in my dreams, and I want to say thank you for that, um, the, being available in the dream state. And also, how can I? I'm wondering if you have any suggestions on how I can make most of the information I receive from my dreams. I don't know if that question is too vague. One of the things that I believe is that our brains are working on many levels at once. We've all heard the wrong saying that we only use 10% of our brains. We don't, you know. We certainly have done enough brain scans now to know that we use all of our brains, but we don't necessarily use all of our brains all at once. So there are things that are important that can't be worded. Books like the Tao Te Ching do their best to talk about that. They say, ah, yes, well, if I'm talking about it, it ain't true. And if it's true, then you can't talk about it. Right? These enigmatic things. And and I believe that, that part of what they're pointing at is that we have experiences which are below the range of consciousness and words. And that the way to make the most of what you're getting from your dreams is to simply trust it. Trust that it is already happening and that it happens as a natural part of being alive and being available and interested. Okay. Someone once asked Gene Houston what the difference between a shaman and a crazy person was. The questioner said, they both, you know, see visions and hear voices and, you know, and do, you know, things that they see in their visions or that the voices tell them, so how can you, t- how can you tell if you're crazy or a shaman? And Gene said, if the voices and visions are telling you to hurt yourself or any other thing, then you're crazy. So I think that applies to our dreams as well. If our dreams are saying to us, you need to get up at dawn every day for the next 30 days and greet the sunrise. You're not crazy. You probably need to do that. I shared a room at a conference with Elisa Starkweather, and we laughed because I said, oh, my guides tend to keep me up late at night. She said, no, mine get me up early in the morning. So we had to kind of, you know easy roommate thing because when I was there she wasn't and when she was there I wasn't. Nice. Thanks for calling. Thank you. (laughs) Good night.
So I'll remind the callers to press one if they have a question, but otherwise we'll keep going with uh, some questions. Let's see. She says, I remember seeing some posts about smoking herbs specifically to help quit tobacco, but also for lung care. I can't seem to find the articles. Would you be able to direct me for any suggestions on smoking herbs? Thank you. That is a good question. And there was, it was some years back that I wrote a little article on smoking. Smoking, I think, is one of the most shamanic and most human things that we do. To make fire already is wow. And then to like make fire and inhale that fire and inhale the smoke of it is just very magical and very incredible. I always have a a wonderful smile when I read about cultures in which smoking is only allowed to the shamans and the postmenopausal women uh, because it said that the smoking um, raises too many spirits and makes you too strong uh, spiritually that if you have not been trained into how to use those energies, then smoking anything, any plant at all can, not just cannabis, I'm sure some of you are thinking of that, can take you to a place of more power than you might be able to really understand how to work with. So it's very sacred act, smoking, very sacred human act to take herbs, dry them, and then burn them and inhale that smoke. And we live in a time where the primary smoke became tobacco. Very interesting. Um, One of the favorite smokes of Native people was sumac berries. And sumac berries were the first native tobacco that was taken to Europe. And they actually became pretty popular until tobacco was brought to Europe. And then, of course, tobacco wins because it's addictive and sumac berry isn't. But that's one to go back to and to help us get a sense that smoking was done to bring medicine down into the lungs. We think now, oh, no, 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 no. Smoking, that's bad for the lungs. And we certainly have enough evidence to see that smoking, cultivated tobacco, is very, very bad for the lungs. But we have no evidence to tell us that smoking small to moderate amounts of any herb, including unfertilized but cultivated tobacco is harmful to the lungs throughout South America. Tobacco is one of the great allies of the shamans. Throughout North America, medicine people of all ilks use tobacco. Tobacco was considered to be such a strong spirit that the tobacco plants were not safe to look at while they were growing. The gardener had to approach the plants backwards and cultivate them by looking only at the soil between their feet 
or to actually wear a blindfold while working with the tobacco plants, lest the soul of the gardener be stolen by the tobacco. My goodness. Mm. Last week, because the week before that, we were talking about corn silk, and corn silk, of course, is a classic good smoke. As are mint leaves and uva ursi. Uva ursi is kinekinek. Kinekinek means herb that is smoked. And uva ursi throughout its growing range was so often the herb that is smoked that it to this day is still called kinekinek. Whereas all of the other herbs that were smoked generally aren't referred to that way. Each medicine person generally had their own smoking mix, and there were more than 100 different plants that were commonly smoked in North America at white contact, including the more ordinary things that you might think of, like coltsfoot leaf and mullein leaf, tobacco, as we've mentioned, but right up into things like cherry bark and sassafras bark. And shaved bits of roots, just an amazing variety of things that went into those mixes. A small amount of burning herb taken in by either inhaling the smoke through the nose or through the mouth actually can open and strengthen the lungs, the bronchia, and the little air sacs, the bronchioli. One of the problems with commercial tobacco is that the chemical fertilizers that are used can produce radon gas in the soil, which is then absorbed into the tobacco leaf and released when it is burned. And so we are actually inhaling radon. The wild plants don't have chemical fertilizers put on them, and thus they are not going to have those particular problems. Do you have uh, herbs that you've ever smoked, Rebecca? Yeah, I've um, added like a little bit, because I used to smoke tobacco, and um, I found that adding a little bit of lobelia actually to, to, to a not like a an herbal mix, it fills those nicotine receptors, so it can help you with your cravings for tobacco, like if you're trying to quit smoking. And okay. um, the lobelia tincture or lobelia leaf? I'm a little unclear. Actually, just, you're not smoking uh, it; you're adding it to something you're consuming. I put it. Um, no, I smoke it. I put it into you like a, a, okay, a, so a mix. Okay, so lobelia that you're smoking. Got it. Okay. Yeah, so I'll put it in like with mullein or and um, just some other like if I want it minty or, I mean just yeah, all the herbs like uva ursi also I've used and um, I haven't tried corn silk but I I would like to try that now. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, and, and of course, um, lobelia is Indian tobacco. It's not tobacco. Right. It's not nicotiana. It's lobelia inflata. But one of its common names is. Indian tobacco because it was so used and it does indeed fill the same receptor sites so you get the same shall we say good feeling with less tobacco 
Yeah, so if you're, like, used to that that tobacco hit, like, when you, it, you know, you can feel it, like, right away, and then you smoke an herbal cigarette, sometimes it's like you're smoking air or something, so to have that little pinch of lobelia in there can really help uh, help you if you're if you need that. <laughs> Great answer. I figured that you would have something excellent to add to the discussion. Yeah, yeah, and I I didn't uh yeah, I haven't smoked anything for quite a while now because I just got completely over smoking, but I kind of I miss it sometimes. So, but I have a bunch of corn silk right now, so I'm going to try that. <laughs> There's something very lovely about a pipe to greet this change between night and day and day and night, the sunrise pipe and the sunset pipe. Yeah, that's always like my favorite time to 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 smoke too, and it has a kind of yeah, it brings in like a very spiritual quality at mm-hmm. that time. Yeah. Mhm. Yep. All right, we did have two people queue up just now, but I think we might only have time for one caller, which is coming from a private number. If you know who you are. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi, Susan. So I'm calling again this week. It's just um, one question. I have lots of red clover tincture um, left, and I don't know what to do with it. So what could I possibly do with red clover tincture? I really don't want to throw it out. Oh, no, you should never throw it out. First of all, it will stay good for a very, very long time. Okay. I believe that that Hoxie uses red clover tincture as part of his um, anti-cancer formula. So perhaps uh, you will have a friend who wants to use red clover as part of an anti-cancer regime. No, I don't know of anyone who's... who's Well, not necessarily right now. I started by saying it will last for a very long time. So keep it in a cool, dark place, tightly lidded. Better if it's a plastic lid than a metal lid. It will be good for your grandchildren. Oh, it'll stay forever? Yes. Oh, okay. Because it, it says the expiration is like 2020. So I was like, oh, it'll be good for two years. But then I'll have to toss it out. And I was really, I was feeling bad about it. If you bought a bottle of vodka, would it be out of date after two years? No. <laughs> Okay, so I, I get the point. Because it's in certified organic alcohol, it says. Distilled water and organic alcohol. And their good manufacturing processes requires them to put an expiration date. Mm-hmm. Okay. In order to be legal, they have to put an expiration date. Yeah, because I know when you make tinctures, you tell us to make it in, like, the vodka, right, which is completely, um, you know, proof vodka. But this has some distilled water and certified organic alcohol. That's what it says. It's uh, 100 proof vodka, which means it's 50% water. Okay. 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 So that's Which is probably what they're doing is mixing their organic grain alcohol half and half with water. Okay. To it get to a hundred to get alcohol. 
says certified organic alcohol, but I guess it's the same It is thing. grain alcohol. It's high-proof alcohol. It's what it is. Yeah. I, when Karina was still running the business, we had long talks over a period of about a year as they were moving from vodka to the grain alcohol. And it was with much sorrow that I saw them do that. They felt that having organic was more important, and one of the bottom lines was that they could get a manufacturing uh, break if they bought the grain alcohol, but they wouldn't have to pay tax, whereas if they brought, bought the vodka, they had to pay tax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's pretty high taxes on your alcoholic beverages. Yeah. So their business became more profitable. They were being pushed to do um, good marketing practices. Mm -hmm. A lot of things converged to have them make that decision. Mm -hmm. But it's not the tincture actually expires. Okay, so these tinctures can last for a long time, so I can use them, not this one, but the other ones, I can use them slowly as I, one at That's, a time. They last for a very, very long time. In dropper bottles with a rubber dropper, the tincture will eventually evaporate out through <gasps> the dropper. Really? Yeah. Some of mine are in dropper bottles, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the dropper bottle itself doesn't promote long storage. Oh. You're going to store a tincture for a long time. Mm-hmm. Then you need to put it in something other than a dropper bottle. Okay. Yeah. So I'll I'll do what you recommend, which is a dark bottle with a plastic um, screw, screwing top on it, because yeah. I have some. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll perfect. Do perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. And then what you're taking, you have in a dosage bottle. Yes, that's exactly what I do. I take some of it in the dropper bottle. What I use in a 50 ml dropper bottle, and exactly. Go from there. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. Thank you ever so much, Susan. You are welcome. Green blessings. And welcome to Rebecca Goyette. Rebecca Goyette creates persona-based works that poke holes in puritanical sexual mores. Working in a wide variety of media, extensive artillery features figurative drawing, video performance, and handmade sculptural elements using fabric, clay, and found materials, and it all comes together in a ritual. Many know her as Lobster Girl, and Goyot <laughs> has filmed her interspecies pornos detailing the sex lives of lobsters internationally. Originally, Rebecca Goyette adopted the sexually aggressive female lobster as a primary character she performed live to promote female agency. Another alter ego is the ghost of her direct ancestor, Rebecca Nurse, who was hanged as a Salem witch. 
Rebecca reimagines her by cycling through repetitive power dynamics and fits and foibles in the new world. Situated within a largely queer fantasy paradigm, Rebecca Goyette's work is able to embrace a, a fruitful multiplicity of sexual desire and engage a panoply of non-normative gender roles. As Judith Butler has articulated in fantasy, gender in fantasy, gender boundaries are transgressed with ease and there is no single position within a fantasy. The identification is distributed among the various elements of the scene. Ornately adorned in the absurd skins of her hand-sewn costumes, Rebecca Goyette's characters wreak havoc with traditional sexual norms in a playland where there are no experts and no actors. Their performative gestures and actions shine light upon the myriad of curiosities lurking in truly intimate encounters, raw, vulnerable, and at times otherworldly. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you so much. We are really interested to hear anything that you have to tell us. Of course, we're all hoping that you can do some kind of performance here over the telephone, but goodness only knows, <laughs> is Lobster Girl going to be with us? <laughs> um, well, I think that since you just started with uh, talking about lobster porn, I think that it's really important for the for the listeners to know exactly how lobster has sex. Um, so I can explain that a bit. So basically, um, the female lobster is the aggressor, boxes the man down, squirts him down with aphrodisiac drugs and pee out of her forehead, and then gets inside of his lobster cave deep beneath the sea. So once she gets inside she has to actually molt her whole shell off in order to have sex, while the male lobster actually has two dicks that he can use to impale her flesh anywhere he wants to. So in order for the female lobster to, uh, to then become ready to leave his lair, she must grow her shell back, of course. So, she, so uh, I imagined that maybe a, a lobster gentleman might be thinking, oh, he's going to have a good night. One night stand or a good time with a with a female lobster, but no, because she has to stay there for almost a month while her shell grows back. When she leaves his lobster lair, uh, the eggs appear on the back of her tail shell, and they hatch um, in the you know in the ocean. So she's and they basically swim off. So it's very interesting in terms of. Uh, the differences between when she's very aggressive and then when I imagine her to be very submissive um, without her, her shell, without her, basically her skeleton, right? Right. Uh, it's an yeah. exoskeleton, yeah. Exactly. So I, I've made a, about nine films so far in that series. Uh, it's been so much fun. I've made them all over the place to Provincetown, Massachusetts. Um, I made one in Greece. I most recently made one in Berlin. And everywhere that I go to do these kind of fantasy scenarios, uh, the story just unfolds in different ways, you know? The, the lobster fantasy scenario. 
Yes. I, um, I have a hard time envisioning a lobster in Berlin. Well, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I mean, I didn't start there, so maybe I'll maybe to describe a little bit. You know, uh, that that's like way advanced for Lobster Girl. When very, she very Berlin. advanced. I mean, that lobster. was like wild. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond, but uh, but but basically, the first lobster porn that I made, um, I had already started to uh, create costumes. I made the lobster claw boxing gloves so that I could wear those. I made the the dress that I would wear with the with the lobster tail, and and then I made an inner suit that was me and my lobster meat. You know, when I was like naked, and I I've just started to imagine my character and really inhabit that character. And so I then read in the New York Times about this guy, Dr. Claw, Ben Sargent, who ended up actually having his own uh, show on the cooking network called Hook, Line, and Dinner, um, Seafood. So basically at the time, he was making lobster rolls out of his apartment in Greenpoint, which is totally illegal. It's, you know, you're not supposed to be making food and selling it without a permit. So he would go to people's houses on his motorcycle, deliver the lobster roll, or you could go to his apartment, slip the money in the mail slot, and then he would slip you out a lobster roll. He was from New England, and he wanted New Yorkers to know what a real lobster roll was all about. And his and he really had a persona. His whole apartment was very nautical, and I saw videos of him in his, his apartment. And I said, this is so perfect. I ordered a lobster roll and had him deliver it to me. And I, and I just opened the door in my costume and he was amazed. He was like, oh my God, look at this. This is amazing. And I said, yes. Do you know how lobsters have sex though? So he, he, he didn't know. So I, I told him, I want to make a lobster porn in your apartment. Would you like to do that with me? <laughs> and he was totally into it. So he said that I could come into his house and for one whole day do whatever I want. I could bring my crew. I could bring the costumes, do, doing whatever. He would make lobster rolls for the, for the set, and, uh, but he just did not have time to practice in advance or do anything with me in advance of the shoot. So that was totally fine with me. I was used to improvisation. Um, more, I, I'm not a trained actor. I, I, I come at performance art from a position of street performance and improv. So I said, yeah, that, that would be fine. And I went to town and made all the costumes. It took me a few months to make costumes for like at least eight characters. And I just showed up and uh, it was amazing. And we just basically went through the exact story of what I just described of how lobsters have sex. So that one was kind of, you know, really, really uh, the basics <laughs> and um, with delicious lobster rolls. So then I decided I wanted to continue doing this. And the, the next one I made with, with, was with a pretty well-known artist, Duke Riley, who is known for his nautical artworks. And I said, oh, you make such, you know, nautical art. Um, I feel like you should be in a lobster porn. And he said, oh, yeah, I have a sailboat parked illegally on the uh, East River in Greenpoint. You want to take the sailboat out? And I said, of course I do. And, and I said, you know, what do you want your costume to be like? Like, what, what, how are we going to do this? And he goes, you want this to be like a romance or a fling? And I said, well, I'll take the fling. And he goes, well, I don't want just two dicks. I want four dicks, one of them long enough that I could 
wrap it around your neck. And I said, <laughs> okay. So I just like, I actually, I actually took on a very submissive role and just made exactly what he wanted and said, okay, I'm going to go for this uh, boat ride. So I called that one touch my hull. Cause he ended up um, having his way with me and then stuffing me into the hull of the boat at the end. And, um, the whole time it was like all the people on the banks of the East river were watching in fascination and even other boats were, you know, honking their horns at us. And there was even a wedding on the bank of the river that they were, they were all watching this. And and it, from far away, it looked like we were having real sex, but the men had just like really huge um, flailing penises, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, the fun had just kept going on. I was invited to a residency in a Greek island, and I was the only American, and it was all Greeks. And so I made a whole bunch of double-dick Speedos and said, let's make a travel sex video. Like, I was imagining, like, Gilligan's Island, some, something like this, you know. And um, that was amazing, too. And the, the, and the Greek men were a little different. They didn't want to be told what to do. You know, they, they wouldn't show up on time. And we were on an uninhabited island. They couldn't go anywhere. They were trapped there with me. So I was like, uh, excuse me, you're late for the movie, you know? And, and they're like, well, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm a little afraid. I'm like, drop your pants. You're putting the speedo on. Come on, let's go. You know? <laughs> and it just, by then I was just like totally into it. And I was like, I'm the director. This is my fantasy. I want you to play this game with me and, you know, and we, and we just do this thing, you know, in Berlin, it was, I, I didn't have to do anything. They, they wanted to play the game so much. It was just too much fun and very gender bendy in Berlin. So lovely. Indeed. What you do seems to have a ritual quality to it. Can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that when it came to the lobster films, I hadn't really thought about my own sexuality in, in terms of what are my choices here and what is available to me. And then when I started performing as Lobster Girl, I really became so sexually empowered because now for the first time I was making choices in the realm of sexuality. And then when I would invite people into these um, stories and have them perform with me, it became really, it's a ritual between me and the other people who are in these films. And there's a transformative quality to it. Of course, that goes back to the whole history of masks. How are masks used in culture? You know, you put that mask on and, and you're no longer yourself. It, it's, you know, it, it, you could link it to even um, shamanic journeys. Um, so, I I really do feel that uh, people become transformed and we enter this fantasy realm and the psychology of the connection between us is very sacred and very unique. And it has the quality of the kind of chemistry that you might have on a first date where you, it's either going to click or it doesn't and it, or it has a really wild uh, ramped up energy or it has an awkward tentative energy and I just never used any performers who really had a training as an actor because I didn't think I could get that quality out of the situation I wanted to approach uh all kinds of people I mean some of them are artists but they're not perform you know perform trained performers might be a, a, a I use a lot of white male painters in my work I just think that's a hoot to make them perform but um you know it's about it's about kind of like 
approaching your own repressions and pushing past them. And you're not pushing past them in a realistic sense because we're wearing costumes. All the genitalia are part of hand-sewn costumes. It's not, we're not actually having penetrative sex, but sometimes there might be kissing involved or touch and, um, and even banter that you might be having with somebody that you, you have as your lover. But no, this is a performance and it's, 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 you know, this is happening for this one moment in time. And so uh, I, I just have found that super powerful. And I've seen people connect in my films and, and end up having romances and, and more often friendships but it's because there's something so intimate about this way of connecting. Yeah. You know? Now, there's two things that I'm picking up that's happening with our listeners. There is a certain segment of listeners who are saying, how can I get in on this? I want to mm-hmm. do this with her. How do I get in touch with her? I want, I, want, I want to do, I want to be with a lobster girl and all those wild penises. Is that ever possible? Yeah. And I mean, and I really feel that that's what happened when I went to Berlin. Uh, These curators found my work online and they invited me to do a showing of all the films that I've made so far. And then as we discussed it, they said, well, we want to make a film with you and invite you, you know, invite you to do that together. And so we collaborated on creating that film where we put out a call to performers. We had a meeting. Mostly women showed up, and I had all these, you know, dick costumes with me in my, in my bag, and I didn't have as many female costumes. And I said, these women are so beautiful, and they are, what they're trying to do is have an experience close to what I'm having. And so I, I sewed night and day making costumes for all the women who came, but I said, can you guys recruit men and, and transgendered folks and stuff to be a part of this? Because uh, I do have these costumes and, and you could wear them, but I want to adorn you. You know, I, I love adorning the female form. So I just, I got a whole bunch of lingerie at, at, at a wonderful bazaar there. And I just started to sew all the, uh, the genitalia to the, to the lingerie and made these costumes for the women. And that was just such an incredible experience because it's just as you say, they were like, I want in on this. I want to try this. And I think it was very empowering for everyone in that group because we had a great connection with each other and it was just a lot, it was a lot of fun, but I think it was really amazing to have that artistic expression together. There was actually a guy in the film who'd had some experience in, in real porn and he said, oh, I love this because it's like the sex clubs of Berlin and it is in a way similar to my experiences in real porn but this is as an artistic expression and I get to play more like a kid in a candy store and and really try different things about like who and what I am and I said oh that's that's so fascinating because you know I haven't had his experience I'm just coming at it from like I'm an artist and I want to use the tools I have to kind of open my own mind and body and soul up because I feel repressed, you know, or I at least did feel repressed when I first started making these films. 
we believe that we are acting, but it turns out we are acting reality. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to you that you are related to Rebecca Nurse, who was hanged as a witch? That has been such an amazing experience as well. So when I was about to go to graduate school in 2008, uh, my aunt had done a genealogy research and found out that we were direct ancestors of Rebecca Nurse. She always had a, a very... A big interest in American history and so she wanted to dig deeper so when I found that out and of course I'm her namesake I became super interested in this and I studied everything that I could uh, going to Salem my family actually had a private tour of Rebecca Nurse's house it's the only um, pers- Puritan who was hanged as a witch who actually has a historic house Uh, that you can go and visit. Uh, She was a female landowner. She was in her 70s when she was hanged. And I believe that, especially in her case, they were very intimidated by her power because there weren't female landowners or homeowners at that time. She had inherited this house, and they went after her. She was hard of hearing when she was being hanged. They, They said, you're guilty of witchcraft and she they said what say you and she she was like what what and then they just hanged her you know so they actually deemed her a christian martyr a hundred years later because she just absolutely had no connection to witchcraft other other women in that scenario had some connections to pagan ritual and to and were actually knowledgeable about herbs and you name it like all all the all the basics of of witchcraft but but not really rebecca uh so when i started to learn about that history i made a ceramic village called gallows hill playground and i went to visit where they thought the women were hanged and they actually have this middle school called gallows hill middle school and there's a playground that's gallows hill playground in salem Um, and you know that, and I saw that they were, there were people who would do ritual fires at night and around those fires, I would find like Oxycontin and, and other wrappers of things that, that, uh, the young people were using. And I became intrigued and I said, you know, this, this town in Salem has all kinds of different layers to it. You have a really amazing witchcraft community that's there to really say what is a witch compared to why were these women hanged and why were these people killed and you also have uh you know a kind of a you know it's a it's a bit of an economic situation in Salem it's not you know there's there's a lot of poverty and drug addiction and different things that that whole area of Massachusetts faces and and that was very similar to the town in Massachusetts that I grew up in. So I could relate to that aspect of that town as well. But I, I, I started researching and going there a lot. And then I ended up um, making uh, this persona ghost bitch and made a film in, in 2015 after a long period of making other types of artworks. I ha- and, and even making the whole lobster porn series, I, 
I, I took it very seriously to be able to enter into that space of, of going into Salem and making this film. I joined a witchcraft circle in, in Brooklyn called Moon Church. And, um, you know, and I studied and practiced witchcraft myself before, before going to Salem so that I could feel prepared to be able to go deeper. And when I got there, I met mostly male witches. It just so happened. And they were amazing. And um, I learned a lot from them. And I connected to more and, and more people who have ritual practices uh, in New York City as well. Because some of the people I met in Salem, you know, of course, have, have connections to New York as well. So it was twofold. It was like I learned more about my ancestry and I and I opened myself up to witchcraft in the process of that. And that, that has really been so fruitful for my artwork and for myself as a person. And I wasn't really going for that at first. Like that wasn't the intention. I just wanted to know more about my ancestry. And then it really became like ancestral work as part of my ritual practice. That's lovely. Yeah. The way you allowed that to flower and to become what it wanted to be. Yeah. I mean, on the first research trip that I went to Salem, I, I did a past life regression and that was an incredible experience. And then I also met um, Tom, a tour guide who gives witch tours of the town. And I, I have for many years given tours of museums here in New York city, more, more, more pertaining to art. And it was when I met him, I was like, Oh, that's like the male representation of me. He's giving tours, you know, and I really wanted him to be in my film. Uh, But and that's how I kind of got excited about meeting this whole group of, of, uh, of practitioners. But it, it just, it, it just astounded me to see how you would have people in the witchcraft community doing historical reenactments in the, in the different theaters and history museums throughout Salem. And so they're playing Puritans in those history performances as well. So when I built my character Ghost Bitch, I wanted her to be this ghost of a Puritan who's set in, you know, present day Salem, who's by day a history reperformer and by night a dominatrix. So again, I always have to relate to sexuality. Uh, so the reperformances, I imagined them to be done in an aerial theater. So I, the, the first scene I shot in the Ghost Witch film was an aerial, aerial scene where I actually learned how to be suspended by a harness and do some of the basics of aerial work. But then I hired an aerial performer to perform as the ghost coming out of my dead body when I was hanged. So I had a rope around my neck and I pretended that I was being hanged, but I had, of course I had the harness on. And then she, she did this beautiful routine popping out of my dead body. So then after that scene, I then, and I actually shot that scene in Brooklyn first before going to Salem. And then I wanted the whole story to just unfold from there. Like what happens after this scene? I don't know. And so when I got to Salem, I got some of the boys to perform as, um, uh, you know, our clients. So it was me and this other girl were, were playing the dominatrixes and the boys were playing our 
our dogs, right? So they were playing as if they were our animal familiars. But I also interjected the idea that they were like, they were wearing Red Sox hats and they were like, they were tourists. And that, and it's true that you have a lot of like Boston based tourists who go to Salem to check out the witchcraft scene, but they're kind of doing it from, you know, a, a real voyeuristic vantage point. So I imagine this is, this that they is would Susan want Lee to have sort of experience. Rebecca Goyette and Rebecca, unfortunately, this is a blog talk show, and we only get about four minutes more. Earlier, oh, okay. I asked how people could get in touch with you, but somehow we slid by that without actually oh, telling sure. them how to get in touch with you. So let's do that now before we have to close Absolutely. the show. Okay. Um, so I have a website. My website is rebogallery.com, and that's R-E-B-O gallery.com. And my email is also rebogallery at gmail.com. And, of course, I'm on social media as well, and you're more than welcome to join me there, too. On Facebook, I'm Rebecca Goyette, G-O-Y-E-T-T-E. And on Instagram, I'm Rebecca J. Goyette. All right. And if you want to get in on any of this fun, then get yourself over there to RebogaLlery.com. As we come to the end of the show, what one thing would you like to leave in the hearts and the minds and between the legs of all the listeners? (laughs) I guess what I love about doing these works is that our sexuality is such a vast psychological terrain and there's so much fun to be had and and you can have a lot of fun in these ways without it even being a penetrative act. And I mean, if you want to, that's cool. But if you don't, if you don't even want to go there, there's so many, there's so much pleasure and connection that one can have if we allow ourselves to play. And I think that these rituals and these video shoots have really taught me that and have given that experience to other people. And I really think that we can do it on our own. I mean, Halloween is uh, tomorrow, (laughs) and I know a lot of people love to wear costumes uh, out on the streets, but I actually prefer costuming in an intimate setting to facilitate something more interesting. Don't let Halloween be the only day of the year that you put on a costume. You can put on a costume in your own home, and you might just have an amazing experience. (laughs) Rebecca Goyette, thank you so much for coming and joining us on the show and helping us to reweave the healing cloak of the ancients. I think that our ancestors knew a lot about having fun. And one of my most beloved teachers always said, If you're having fun, it's got to be true because you can't fake fun. Oh, I love that. Isn't that great? (laughs) He says, you can fake sincerity, but you can't fake fun. You really can't. (laughs) 
Thank you so much, Rebecca Goyette. Green blessings, everybody. I'll see you next week. I'm not going away for weeks and weeks yet. We're just getting you prepared for it, but I'll be right back here next week, and so will Rebecca. Thank you so much for helping me restore herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. Rebecca, love you lots. Love you too. Good night, everyone. Good night. Green blessings, everybody.